folks, this is Pastor Mike Hoggard coming to you from Watchman Studios with another Watchman video broadcast. Before the creation, before anything that we know of and don't know of existed, including the earth, the heavens, what we call the universe, the word universe means, uni means one, verse means a word, one word. So we have before the universe, before all the heavens, the stars, the planets, before all the angels, before man, before anything, some would say there, there must have been nothing. But there wasn't nothing. There was something. Because everything has an origin point. A place in which they begin. And this creation could not have begun simply by itself. It had a source. And that source is represented by the number one, represented by this Roman numeral I. So this is one. Now, this just happens to be and represent the very character and nature of God. Things like God is one. The Lord our God is one Lord. We'll look at some of those verses later. Uh, but basically, numbers especially the number one, revealed to us the very nature and character of God. You see, God is a God of order. Everything that he does has a, has a purpose to it, has a plan to it, has an order to it. And if, and if there's chaos, I mean, that's not of God. God let, you know, let all things be done decently and in order, the Apostle Paul tells us, because that's the way God is. He is a God of order, a God of structure. And so when we look at numbers, let's, let's just take a look at numbers just for a minute and see the nature and character of God. Number one, numbers have absolutely no end whatsoever. In fact, if we were to go backwards, like to one and then to negative one, negative two, negative 100, negative 1,000, negative 10 quadrillion, we still have the very nature of God because God, like numbers, are eternal and everlasting. We will never, ever, ever be able to count to the very last number because of the way they're structured. We can just keep adding zeros to that. The numbers become higher and higher and higher, but they never end. And that's God. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, another way to look at it is that the same way that math is done uh, here in America, where we take two plus 2, and that equals 4. 
Then when you go, let's say, to the Middle East or China or Russia or the North Pole or the South Pole, 2 plus 2 equals 4 there. If you go to the moon, 2 plus 2 equals 4. If, if we ever go to Mars, 2 plus 2 will equal 4 on Mars. In other words, God is the same no matter where you go. In fact, Psalm 19 talks about that where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and, the, and um, day unto day utter a speech, not into night showeth knowledge, and there is no language where that's not understood. In other words, everybody on the earth understands the same principles about numbers. Therefore, everybody on the earth can understand the same principles about God. God is the same no matter where you go. And so I like that part about God, is that God is relatable to numbers. Now, uh, we started this and, uh, the last time. Uh, we just kind of gave a rundown of studying numbers in the Bible. And I'm going to give you the two verses, the two witnesses, that basically tell us that studying numbers in the Bible is an accepted way of understanding the very wisdom and the order and the structure of God. In other words, numbers help us understand not only God's workings in the past, God's workings now in this present world, but also God's working in the future. First, let's go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. So John clearly here is telling us that if you want wisdom, here it is right here in this verse, and we're defining the number of the beast, but it's also the number of a man. And that number is six hundred, three score, and six. And he says, count the number. So, we went to the 666th chapter of the Bible. Now, again, I'm going to keep saying this throughout this series. That's a fact. Okay? Ecclesiastes 7 in this Bible is the 666th chapter of the Bible. And I've counted various of these. Um, the 1,000th chapter of the Bible. Okay? 10 is the number for dominion. So 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. See how it comes in threes? We know that Christ is going to reign for 1,000 years. That's 10 times 10 times 10. So uh, 10 is the number for dominion. 1,000 is the number for, let's say, Christ's kingdom. The 1,000th chapter of the Bible is John chapter 3. And it tells us how we can be part of the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wanted to know, how can I be part of your kingdom? And what did Jesus say? Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then, of course, John 3.16 is where it tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so right there, to me, that just makes sense, all right? But anyway, back to the 666th chapter of the Bible. It's Ecclesiastes 
chapter 7. And since we didn't find the name of the beast there, we did find a second witness telling us that if we count things in the Bible, then we'll get wisdom for it. Ecclesiastes 7.25, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Solomon wanted to know wisdom and to be able to search it out. And so two verses later in verse 27, he said, Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. In other words, in order to understand, in order to have wisdom, in order to find out the account of the things that go on in this world, Solomon said, I found that by counting one by one, you could find out those things. And again, that's the 666th chapter of the Bible. Now, that's a fact is what it is. And that in this Bible, that's the number that it is. I can't change it. I can't alter it. I can't shift the books around, and I wouldn't dare shift the books or the chapters around to make the numbers come out any different. I'm going to leave the Bible the way it is. I'm going to leave the words the way they are. I'm not going to add to the words of this Bible, nor am I going to take away from the words of this Bible. I'm simply going to let these words say what they're going to say. And I promise you, there's going to be order to this Bible. There are going to be numerical patterns in this Bible that I believe you can't find in any other English translation of the Bible. Okay? Now, uh, let's go to our number meanings because today we're going to deal with uno, uni, ono, one. We're going to deal with this number. We're going to see how it's related to the nature, the character, and our understanding of God. So we look at our number meanings. One is beginnings, unity, preeminence. Even the word unity has the word uni in it, right? Number two, division, union, witness, Gentiles. Number three, Godhead, resurrection, and sin. Number four, the spiritual realm, the gospel, the false gospel. Number five represents death and the rapture. Number six is the number for preparation. It is also the number for Man, God, capital letters, which would be Christ. Man, God, little letters, which would be another Christ. Little, little Jesus, okay? Uh, number seven, that's obvious. The number four, completion, perfection, forgiveness. How, how should we forgive people? Until seven times? No, you'll figure it out. Eight is the number for redemption and new life, a new birth, a new, a new way of doing things. Nine is the number for fruitfulness or the fruit bearing, fruit of the Spirit. Ten is the number for dominion or authority. Eleven for confusion, disorder, chaos. Twelve, God's promise, the heavens. Re Thirteen is the number for rebellion, wickedness, abominations. Uh, it also has another meaning that, I'm, that I haven't put in here. Believe it or not, when we get there, I'll show it to you. The number 13 represents God's pure love. Think about it. You have 12 disciples. Jesus makes what number? 13. Or you could start with Jesus and count all the way down to Judas. He's number 13. 
bottom line is you still have 13 guys walking around telling the world about Jesus Christ, okay? And um, we'll see it as the love of God as we move along. 17, number for transformation. 22, revelation or uh, revealing mysteries. The number 23 and 46 represent death. 33 equals wisdom, spiritual sight. 66 represents the Word of God, obviously. 70, I put down as the number for the king, and we'll see all of these as we move along. Now, let's take this one, and let's go to the very first chapter of the Bible, and we're going to look in the first verse of the Bible. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the meaning of the number one, but we're also going to be looking at another number that, believe it or not, is associated with the number one. Okay? Look at this. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning. So that's what we saw in our number list was that uh, the number one represents beginnings. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, we believe this. As Bible-believing Christians, this is what we believe. We believe that before there was anything, there was one. And that one is God, was God, will always be God. But then we noticed that when God created everything on, on the first second of the first hour of the first day of all of the beginnings, all the creation and so on, that there's three things here that God created. So we have in the beginning, that's time. Because in the laws of physics, time rules over everything. Okay? There's, there's, you, there's nothing that can exist in our universe, in our creation, without time to govern it. In fact, they, they, the uh, people who are physicists call it the space-time continuum. They recognize in physics that time and space and matter must coexist together and that they cannot be separated from one another. So let's, let's do this. So we have in the beginning, that's the number one time, God created the heaven, that's the second thing he created, that's space, okay, this way, this way, this way, this way, all of these different ways, and the earth, matter. One, two, three. Now, here's what I'm going to show you. We, we know this. We're going to see verses that relate to it later. We know that there is one God. It's called monotheism, not related to mononucleosis. It is monotheism. It is the belief that there is one God. There are a few religions in the world. Uh, Judaism. 
uh, Islam, Christianity. Uh, there may be a few others, but generally those are called the monotheistic religions. Other religions around the world, they have multiple gods. Some of them more powerful than others, but they all worship gods. In India, oh my goodness, how would you like to say I'm sorry to 330 million gods? It'd take a life, it would, you couldn't get it done. But anyway, we, it's called monotheism. We believe that there is one God. There's, and there's not, that one God is not just for us white Caucasian people. That one God is for everybody in the entire world. After all, one God made everybody in the entire world. So that one God can be the God of everybody in the world. And I can tell you, he is a loving God. Always a loving God. That's what I love about him. Anyway, the three parts of the creation, time, space, and matter. Now, why do I bring this up? We look in Romans chapter 1, and Paul answers this question. Now, we know that Paul wrote this by way of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, which is what the Bible says. So, this section of scriptures here and this doctrinal understanding came directly from God. I was asked this question when I was a teenager by some adults that were some old friends of my mom and dad and uh, they went to a, I think a Baptist church somewhere and, and they asked me the question because I was already like 16 and I was announced to call to preach and so we're going to ask my theologian son this, this question. And they said, Mike, what do you believe? Do you believe that people who have like, lived in the Amazon jungle and they've never had any contact with uh, humans or outside civilization or anything, they've never read a Bible, they've never done this, do you believe that they will go to heaven when they die not having known anything about God or Jesus or salvation? And boy, uh, I will, I think it's... Uh, well, um, and I just kind of, kind of leaned more conservative, and I said, uh, I don't, I don't think that they can, because even though they may not have heard anything, uh, if if they're if they're going to go to heaven without hearing about Jesus, why are we sending missionaries to find them to tell them about Jesus? And then that's when they told me, well, our pastor, I like this phrase, well, our pastor says that he believes that there is a different dispensation for them and they, they'll, they'll, get, they'll get an excuse. They'll get a free pass into heaven because they didn't know about anything. Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question a whole lot better than I did. And the Apostle Paul says that basically they're without excuse. When God creates a person, evidently he puts in them the required knowledge they need to understand that there is one God and that he is the one and the only one to be worshipped. But lo and behold, all over the world you have these primitive tribes that have had little or no contact with the outside world and for some reason, they know enough to worship 
hundreds of gods or even thousands of gods. But anyway, here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, that's Genesis 1-1, are clearly seen. The invisible things are seen. Notice that. How are they seen? Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know what the Godhead is, don't you? We talked about it last time. The Godhead is what is referred to as the Trinity. The fact that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5, 7 says that for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, I don't understand that completely, but I believe it. So, the Bible's telling us why it is in Genesis chapter 1-1 that we have the creation of time, space, and matter. And yet, all of these are joined together as the creation. The single creation of time, space, and matter. None of these can exist without the other. Just like God is. God is one. And yet, God is three. But God is one. Let's look at some other verses that gives us this idea of God being, let me put my ones over here, being one. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Let's look at that. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first. And with the last, I am He. So God is saying here, before anything ever was, before there were planets, stars, galaxies, a universe, before there were angels, which are sometimes good angels, bad angels, are little g gods, and they're called devils in other places in the Bible. Before all of the other gods, there was one God. His name is the Lord, Jehovah, uh, the first. Okay. Then we find out that this verse, Isaiah 41, was actually quoted by none other than Jesus Christ. So if you doubt the divinity of Jesus Christ. Just notice what Jesus said about himself in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. In verse 13, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, did you notice in this verse how many times Jesus declares himself to be numero uno? Look at it again. I'm alpha. That's the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The beginning. That's I am the first of time. And then the first and the last. 
So he said, I am Alpha. I am the beginning. And I am the first. One, two, three. Because the Bible says later on, or earlier than this, that in Christ dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that's why Jesus said it the way. He could have just said, I'm the first, and just left it that way. But he gives the full reality and the full impact of who he really is, that Jesus is just as much God as his Father is God. I mean, stop and think about it for a minute. If Jesus is the Son of God, then the Son of God, if God is God, and he has a Son, then the Son must be God. When I got married to my wife, and we had our first child, she was a hoggard. Okay? Proud of it. We were, uh, we were hog herders. That's what the name means, hog herders. Okay? She was a hoggard. Why? Because her father was a hoggard. So if she walks like a hoggard, acts like a hoggard, and quacks like a hoggard, She's a hoggard, okay? If Jesus uh, walks like God, talks like God, and rises from the dead, he is God. There's no doubt about it. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, and the beginning and the end. And it doesn't matter how you stack them, okay? Jesus is always still going to be God, and all that is always going to be one. Let's move on. 1 John 5, 7. And I'm going to make note of this again, that that verse, 1 John 5, 7, uh, go to Blue Letter Bible, um, just pick any translation or go to any, any Bible search website where you can search different translations of the Bible. And look for 1 John 5, 7 in the New American Standard, the NIV, the Revised Standard, the English Standard, uh, the Holman Christian Standard, which is the Southern Baptist, their own Bible. And look for 1 John 5, 7. It's not there. They truncated 1 John 5, 7. They, they made it shorter. They say, for there are three for verse 7, and then they stick in verse 8, that bear witness on the earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. They make you think that verse 7 is there, but it's not there. Because verse 7 says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are what? One. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, or we can do the Holy Ghost, the Son, and the Father, or we can do the Son, 
Uh, let's see here. The, the Father, the Holy Ghost, and the Son. Doesn't matter how you do it. They're all three the same God. So if we say there is one God, we mean it. There is one God. Now, he is also three. And to try to make sense out of that is, is my opinion, beyond our understanding, our limited ability to conceive of a Godhead that is three and yet it is one. And yet, that, my friends, is crucial to your belief of who God is. Any other God that is not the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost is not the true God. So, when people like Rick Warren and others who are trying to get us to get along with Islamic neighbors and so on, I don't, I don't want you to hate your neighbor by any means. But let's not kid ourselves. They go around screaming that Allah has no son. So it would be very, very difficult. Well, it would be downright impossible for, all, for any of us to say that Allah and our God and the God of the Jews, Elohim, are the same God. In fact, you, you could say, well, El and Al, Allah and El, are basically their cousin languages to each other, which I, I understand that. Uh, kind of like the, uh, the Latin-based languages, like French and Spanish and so on. Um, and you could say, well, Allah basically is El to the Jews, and he's Allah to the Arabs, and so he's basically the same God. But here we have a problem. El is not just El in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, he is El-Ohim. And anybody who knows anything about the Hebrew language knows that if you want to make something into a plural, you add the letters I-M to it. Okay? L becomes Elohim. Okay? Which means gods or God plural. Okay? So... When Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace and expecting to see three in there, he sees four. He says one of them looks like B'nai Elohim, the son, not of gods, the son of God. He saw God who is three and yet God who is one. And so the Jewish, the Hebrew Elohim cannot be the same as Allah to the Muslims and to us Christians. Allah cannot be the same God as our God, the Lord our God, because the Lord our God had a son. And he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so how dare Robert Schuller and Billy Graham get together on Robert Schuller's TV program and agree with each other in front of the audience and the TV audience in saying that they believe that Muslims, devout Muslims, basically believe in the same God as we do. 
and that they're going to go to heaven because they're devoted to Allah. No way, Jose. Doesn't happen that way. The numbers matter. The numbers count. And again, I draw your attention to this idea that this verse, verse 7, is omitted out of every modern translation of the Bible. It's taken out. And then I, I, I remember specifically the last time we were doing this, uh, I, I, I don't gamble and I don't, I'm not going to encourage you to gamble, but I would, I would give money to somebody who could prove to me without 1 John 5, 7, that the Godhead, the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, or Word, and Holy Ghost, are one without 1 John 5, 7. I just, I don't think you can do it. I'm not really offering money. I'm just giving you the idea of what I believe. And I'm staunch in that belief. And I'm not moving from that belief. That you take 1 John 5, 7 out of the Bible, you no longer have a foundation for the Trinity or the Godhead. It doesn't exist. Ah, let's move on. Oh, I like this one. Here we go. Here we go again. Let's put those two over there. We're dealing with God now. He's the creator. But actually, the New Testament tells us that it was through Jesus and by Jesus that all things were created. In fact, John, uh, the Gospel of John, says it in, in no uncertain terms. Well, let me just read this to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. It's just like in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. You have the Godhead right there in John 1.1. 1, 1. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and with that, well, let me do it like this. Without Him was not anything made that was made. If it exists, Jesus made it, okay? So now, let's look at Genesis chapter 1 when Jesus, God, actually created us. Genesis 1 verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So did you catch all that? Notice that God is talking to himself in the plural. And God, God one God, said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I, you know, I've, you know me, I've studied the UFO movement and the whole UFO phenomenon for most of my life. Reading Eric Von Daniken and his, uh, his ability or his uh, attempt at trying to explain Ezekiel chapter 1 
as a group of space aliens that traveled to this planet and they're the ones who seeded mankind on here, that that couldn't be God because God, if it's God, God doesn't need a chariot to ride around. That's his excuse and so on. And so he looks at Genesis 1 and he says, obviously, it's the aliens in their spaceship, the council of the aliens, they're having a meeting and they finally decide that maybe they'll create a, a, a sentient being on this planet and we'll just see how uh, this, this man creature evolves and you know, grows in this planet and so on. That's, that's what they say. That's what Von Daniken said. That's what others have said that we were seated here by some alien force. There was a movie called Mission to Mars. I don't know if you saw it. Gary Sinise and can't remember who else was in there. But anyway, they travel to Mars. They go to the face on Mars. Look that up. And um, inside the face on Mars is a history of how life got on planet Earth. It started, they say, according to them, it started on Mars. And, and Mars uh, took... They're all of their DNA and they sent it to the earth and all the DNA on earth turned into all these different creatures and so on and evolved and, and finally, finally they got the technology to go to Mars to come to Mars to find out the truth of their or origins and that the planet Mars was struck by an asteroid or something like that and ruined it so all the Martians had to get in spaceships and go far away to a different place and now they're going to take man who was originally from Mars and take him to another place in the heaven. And I'm just like, no, that's not how it happened. Okay? But that's, it's called the space seed idea that we were seeded here from something up in outer space. It's just easier to believe in God. Okay? It's just easier. But anyway, you have God saying, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And so there's something about man that makes him in the image of God himself. The Bible actually tells us what it is. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? And see, man, especially in this country, they go around using a very similar phrase all the time. Uh, body, soul, spirit, or body, mind, spirit, or body, mind, soul, or whatever. They always put the body first. I never did like that. But God himself says that man consists of Spirit, soul, body. Just like God is the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. So we'll say that the Spirit and the soul is God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we'll have the Son characterized as um, man's body because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, okay? So we are basically made 
in the very image of God. And maybe that also is part of what uh, Paul was saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, is that the invisible things of God can be seen. It's seen that we are spirit, soul, and body. It's seen that, that everything that create was created was created with time, with space, and with matter. And that teaches us that there is a Godhead. That's God's signature upon His creation. Now, here's some more verses. That basically they're establishing God and the meaning of the number one as this word preeminent, which means that if everybody's going to line up and go someplace in order, God is always going to be at the head of the line. In fact, if you follow the Israelites through the wilderness, as they're going from the land of bondage, Egypt, to the land of promise, Canaan, who goes first? Well, among the tribes, it's Judah. But who goes before Judah? The Lord does. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. He is always first. And there can be no other. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. Even though he's three, he's still one. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Not just giving you a, a mathematical puzzle or a mathematical clue. He's basically telling you his very nature and his character, that he is number one. And there is never anything else that can even come close to being number one. Let me see if I can explain it uh, like this. Let's see if I have, uh, oh, I do have, okay. Let's think of these two concepts, okay. There's one, again, the Roman, Roman numeral I there for one. There's one, and in just the most simplistic math that you can even think of, there's one, and then there's, let's see, we'll do it like this, more than one, okay? Because, you know, that looks like the greater than sign, okay? There's one. And then there's more than one. So the number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, a hundred, a billion, a quadrillion, a, a Google, that's actually a number, Google. Um, all of them are under the category of more than one. And so while you have an unlimited amount of numbers that are more than one, you will always only have one that can be one. And that's it. One is one and nothing else can be one. Does that make a little sense to you? I hope it does. Uh, Romans 12, 5. So we 
being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. All right. So we, being many, this would be like five, Roman numeral five. So we, being many, are one. How is that? Well, when you look at me, you see I've got five fingers here, five fingers here. I've got opposable thumbs. I have an, two arms. I have two eyes, eyebrows. I got a chin, well, I got two chins, maybe. But anyway, when you're looking at me, you don't see my individual parts unless you like you focus on my eyes or focus on my lips while I'm talking or whatever. You see me generated as a whole. So every cell in my body and every single part of my body is all counted to be one. And so that's the way it is with the body of Jesus Christ. Even though there are untold millions of people who make up the official God-approved body of Christ, there still is only one body of Christ. So we being many members are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. So in other words, where this one goes, this one and this one must go as well. Okay? And if this one stays, these ones stay. If these, this one dies, these die. If this one's resurrected, these also are resurrected. Okay, I'm having fun with my blocks. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all are partakers of that what? One bread. The one bread he's talking about is... Genesis to Revelation, without Apocrypha, the 66 books of the Bible. When we say the Word of God, we don't mean just one word like the or and. We mean the entirety of every word that's given to us between Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22-21. Every word in there came from one source, and that source was the Holy Ghost of God. It came from God Himself. These three are one. And so that body that is one body, and even though we are many partakers of that. We are one bread and one body because we are all our partakers of one bread. Let me explain it like this. Every part of my body contains cells and all of those cells contain, all of them contain an exact duplicate of my DNA. Now, it may be more difficult to extract DNA from some cells as there are others. 
So when they want some of your DNA, like at the hospital or, God forbid, the police station, they swab your mouth because there's a lot of loose cells there and they know they can get a lot of DNA uh, from that or they take blood, they can get DNA out of your blood or wherever. They can get your DNA and they can look at it and they note that every cell in your body all has exactly identical DNA. There's, there is not anybody that I am aware of whose left side contains only the DNA of his mother and the right side contains only the DNA of his father. I, I do not know of anything like that. In fact, that would be, I'll just call it an exception, okay? But that would be so out there that we never think of it. When mom and daddy conceive a child, that child becomes the recipient of the combining of man and woman's DNA to create its own unique individual DNA. So when that child is born, he comes out and every cell in his body has a copy of their particular DNA. And one person's DNA is nothing compared to other people's DNA. It's all different. And yet, we're all human, so we all have the same species DNA. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. That my body is a partaker of my DNA. And my DNA controls what happens in my body. Just like the members of our church whether they sit here in Bethel or they watch online or they're some of the people in Kenya, they are partakers with us of one bread. We only use one Bible in our church, the King James Version. Why? Number one, I believe it's the Word of God. Number two, adding others would breed confusion. It would be out of order, and we can't do that. Plus, you can't memorize verses. How, how, would you, how can you memorize verses from the NIV? Let's say that you have a, a 1980 version of the NIV, it's, which is both Old and New Testament. And you have verses memorized from the NIV from 1980. You memorized them when you were in high school or whatever. Do you know that there's a good chance that those verses you memorized have been completely altered since 1980? Because the NIV has been undergone five different revisions since 1973, okay? So how can a church be truly one body when they're obviously not all partakers of the same bread? Because according to the laws of copyrights, the NIV has to be significantly different than any other translation, or they can't get a copyright on it. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so is Christ. Isn't that beautiful? We've gone from preeminence to the idea that one represents unity. Different members of the body, different preachers, different styles of preachers, 
different habits of preachers, different ways preachers uh, deliver the gospel message, but it's still the same gospel message from the same source, from the same bread, from the same book given to feed the same body. The Christians here in America, by and large, are the same as the Christians in Kenya or the Christians in Pakistan or the Christians in Russia or the ones in Europe, the ones in South America. They're pretty much the same because we all feed from the same bread, which is the Word of God. Now, God must be first in everything. Exodus 13.2 tells us, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn. Whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. So God's basically establishing a law here. And he's saying that whenever you have a child, your first child, uh, or, let's say, your prize bull uh, conceives his first offspring, God said that that first bull, or that first cow, that first calf, or that first lamb, or that firstborn son, or that first daughter, that belongs to me. That should be dedicated to me. Now, you could say, well, what do I do? Give up my kids? No. But we do have one in the book of Samuel. Uh, her name was Hannah. She was um, in a uh, marriage with another woman, Peninnah. And they were married uh, to um, Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives. I believe you should have one. Uh, but he had two, and, and Peninnah was producing children. Hannah wasn't. And when her husband went to perform his duties there at the temple of the house of God, Eli, the high priest, was there, and, and Hannah would go and she would pray. She'd cry and weep and, and so on. And, and uh, Eli saw that she was praying and she was moving her mouth, but she wasn't saying anything. And he said, are you, are you drunk already? It's early in the morning. She said, don't think of me as a daughter of Belial, because that's not what I'm doing. My heart is distressed. And what are you distressed about? I have no child. And Eli made a promise to her. And he said, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. And when that child is weaned, you're going to bring him here. And she made that promise. I'm going to give him to the Lord. And sure enough, when that child was weaned and ready, she took the child. She made a coat for him. She took him to Eli the high priest, gave, gave him her firstborn son, and said, here, he's yours. He belongs to God. And you know what God did after that? God opened her womb. And she had more children after that. And I'm sure she loved every one of them. Okay? But her firstborn belonged to God. Um, our firstborn child was our oldest daughter. And we dedicated her to the Lord. We don't, we don't believe in infant baptism. 
but we anointed her with oil in a special service and prayed for her that God would take her and God would use her and God would uh, keep her in his kingdom. And you know what? She is, she is right there with her mom and dad every day and she belongs to the Lord. And we're thankful for that. Very thankful. Thankful for all of our children. But the firstborn belonged to God. God, God didn't say, I want the second, third, the fourth, the fifth. I want the firstborn. Exodus twenty two twenty nine. Thou shalt, shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors, the firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. So when they went around gathering in grapes, gathering in wheat, gathering in barley, gathering in corn, when they pressed the grapes into uh, new wine, God said, I want that first. Okay? Not alcohol. I want the first press of those grapes. That belongs to to me, and they had to bring that to the house of the Lord. Now, did God eat it? Did God drink all their wine? No. God used it for the benefit of the men who did his service in the tabernacle, which was the tribe of Levi. And so it, it just it makes me wonder. Here you have Eli, whose sons Hophni and Phineas violated just about every rule that God had about service to the temple. God gave them a worthy portion. They got the first, uh, the first of all the meat. They got the first of all the, uh, the wine. They got the first of all the grapes, the, of the grain. They got the first of everything, but that wasn't good enough. The Bible says they had a flesh hook with three prongs. Three represents lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And they would just stick that into the pot where the meat was uh, seething in that pot, and they would pull out what they wanted. They were stealing from God. Can you imagine? Anyway, Exodus 23, 19, The first of thy firstfruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God, and thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. In other words, you don't, you don't kill a calf while he's still suckling on his mother and cooking. Okay? But the first of the first fruits of thy land. In other words, when you go through on the first day of gleaning whatever crop you have, that first day belonged to God. Now, did some people cheat? Well, of course they did. I think God blessed those who didn't cheat. And I think God had a way of correcting those who did. Either way, God got it. Okay? Uh, Matthew 1. Oh, look at this. Jesus, we know, we know for a fact from the Gospels that Jesus had brothers. We know that he had siblings. And so, when Mary was to bring forth a child... And that child was to be the savior of the world. Could it have been possibly maybe one of Jesus' brothers that could have been the savior? No, not possible. Why? Because the law required 
that the lamb that was to be slain was the firstborn. So Matthew 1, 24, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not. It means he had no relations with her at all until she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus, the firstborn. Jesus is number one of all men, of all angels, of all prophets, of all bishops, of all apostles, of all judges, all kings, and all lords. Jesus is number one of everything. Remember, he's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Notice that it doesn't say he's one of the kings of kings and he's one of the lords of lords. It doesn't say that. Because there's only room for one. You either have one or you have many. Here, I'll make that a number seven, okay? You either have one or many. And from any number two and on can be many, but there's only one number that can be one. And that number and that person would be Jesus Christ, her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Matthew 6, oh, I like this now. And this is a, absolutely a practical concept that I want you to understand it, that if you really don't get into all the prophecy of these numbers and so on, uh, understand this one principle. And I promise you, you'll live a very happy life. Matthew 6.33 But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Do you want to be happy? Do you want good things to come to you? Do you want things that you prayed for to happen or possibly God just doing something a whole lot better than you could have ever thought of to pray for? Then put God first. You know what day we worship? The first day of the week. We come together on the first day of the week to adore the firstborn Son of God, to keep God first in everything that we do. God, as far as we're concerned, gets the first day of our week. We give Him that. And God says, I will give you the whole rest of the week. You can work, you can play, you can do recreation, you can do nothing if you want. But God gets the first day of the week for us. And that day, of course, is Sunday. And we set aside that day to come together, to sing, to fellowship, to hear the Word of God preached and taught to us because we seek 
first the kingdom of God. And we'll just put it up in simple terms. My, my wife and I, when we were first married, we went through a time where uh, we didn't have very much money. And my wife came to me and she said, we have enough money to pay our tithes or we have enough money to pay our electric bill. But we don't have enough money to pay both. And I said, uh, in faith, just a, a simple response. Let's pay the tithes and we'll let God pay the electric bill. Now you can say, oh, that's so simplistic. You know, it doesn't really work that way. Well, it did. God paid the electric bill. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And I've seen God do that numerous times in our life together, my wife and I. And um, we've seen that when we put God and his principles and his word and his commandments first, that he blessed us with everything else. Do you know it's not wrong to have good things in this life? There's not a sin against, that's not a sin against God to have good things in this world. If you love them and you put them first ahead of God, of course it's wrong. It's a, it's a horrible, tragic sin this covetousness that we have, especially in this country, for things. We want things. We, want, we don't want money. We want money to buy things with. We like our things. We get rent storage sheds to put our things in there because we don't want to lose our things. And all of that stuff, more than likely, you bought that stuff and never gave God a single dollar bill. What you should have done is taken care of God's kingdom first. Let him give you such as you have need or such as what make you happy. And God knows better what makes us happy than anybody. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it works in every aspect. It works in business. And if you are a part of a business and you know there's things going on that are corrupt, that are wrong, and you don't do something, at least something to try to alter that so that things that are right and righteous are done, do you know God will bless that? He will. I've seen it. I've seen it in so many situations. I can't can't recount them all, where if we put God's principles first and God's commandments, like thou shalt not bear false witness, you put God, God's commandments first, and God will bless the rest of you, and you won't even have to ask. God will just give it to you, okay? Wonderful principle from God's Word. And here's my favorite part of this. One is actually a name for God. Zechariah 14, 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, 
And in that day shall there be one Lord and his name. Now you read that verse. The Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. I like that. His name is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It just makes sense that there would be God and God alone. Alone has the word one in it. I don't know if that means anything or not, but anyway, God is God alone, and there is no other that can even come near unto him. So to me, it just kind of makes sense that his name is one. Number seven, verse 89. I had to do a double take on this. I wasn't sure there was 89 verses. Well, yeah, there is. Number 789. And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, look at what it says. Then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat that was upon the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubims, and he spake unto him. He heard the voice of who? One. Heard the voice of one. Second mm. Kings 19.2 Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed, and against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the holy... One of Israel. And you look at that. Holy One. And that O in One is capital O. Showing a name. The proper name. The Holy One of Israel. That's His name. Holy One. Revelation, oh, I like this one. In fact, I'm going I'm to close with this one. Because when I really started looking at what God told me, God, God laid it, just spoke it to my heart. I didn't hear it with audible ears. Mike, this Bible, the King James, is right in everything it says. And I immediately surrendered to that. But I wanted evidence. I wanted tangible proof that I could share with other people. It's one thing if I say, the King James is right 100% of the time, believe what I believe me when I say that to you. You may not. But if I give you proof, like what I'm doing now with numbers and so on, then you might start thinking differently about it. And so when I saw this verse, and then I compared it with what was in the other translations. Oh, I thought, man, something ain't right here. What verse am I talking about? Revelation 4. In Revelation 4 is sort of a companion to um, Ezekiel 1, where um, Ezekiel sees the throne of God um, on a chariot, and John sees the throne of God in the, in the temple of God. And um, when John is caught up in the Spirit, he looks... And in verse 2 of Revelation 4, 
He says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So if I add this, I and my Father are one, who's sitting on the throne? I and my Father, Jesus and His Father. If I say, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Spirit, or the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, who then is sitting on the throne? One. But it's Father, Word, and Holy Ghost. So then I, I thought, I wonder what the other translations say about this verse. And you go look it up. Blue Letter Bible or go get other translations that you have. And it seems that John's pretty sure who he sees on this throne. I mean, after all, he's caught up into heaven. Who would you expect to see up there? God, right? So he sees one on the throne. He doesn't have a question who that is. But if you look in the NIV, the NIV says, and he saw someone sitting on the throne. Someone? You mean it could be anybody? It could be someone else? And you look at other translations, and they're all going to say something besides one sat on the throne. And I looked at that, and that just kind of launched me forward quite a bit on my love and my um, understanding and my holding on to a book that I believe with all my heart is the absolute, inerrant Word of God. I believe every word this book says and would not deny any of it because one sits on the throne in my Bible. Now, the throne is your heart. You know, the 24 elders that surround the throne here in Revelation 4, that's the 24 ribs that surround the throne of your heart. And then eat. The two lungs are the seven spirits of God. You have seven bronchial branches that branch out, just like in the, the, uh, the almond tree menorah that was in the tabernacle. It's pretty neat, isn't it? Okay? You have the four chambers of the heart. You have the four living creatures or the four angels, the four chambers of the heart. Then you have a sea of glass, clear as crystal, surrounding that. And you have surrounding your heart, pericardium, a sack full of water. Just like in the throne of God up in heaven. Okay? So you have that throne in your heart. And I'm going to ask you the question, do you know who sits on that throne? You know who rules? You know who's in charge? Is it one or is it someone else? guiding your heart. I hope it's Jesus Christ. I really do. Okay? 
join with us because we believe that one sits on the throne. This is Pastor Mike. I love you. You're the reason why we do what we do. Keep us always in your prayers, especially when we minister to the good people of Kenya and try to meet their needs. Keep us in your prayers and your support. We love you. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.